The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. The team returns next week, but while they're away, we're continuing to revisit some of our favourite episodes from the archive. Over the past three weeks, we've been listening to the extraordinary sounds of the ocean. And in this episode, which was first broadcast in June 2018, we're climbing back onto land to hear the work of sound ecologist Dr Bernie Krauss. Soundscape ecology in the simplest form is, is the study of sound in the landscape or the seascape. And the value of this material is what the planet sounds like, because we can make a determination from listening to very short pieces of these, um, of these soundscapes, 15 seconds, we can tell whether a habitat is healthy or whether it's under stress. And in some cases, we can tell what the reasons for that compromise in a habitat or the health of a habitat is. Science Weekly will return with all new episodes from Friday the 6th of September. But for now, enjoy this episode as Ian Sample speaks to one of the pioneers in the field about his life in sound. Hello. Hi, Bernie. Hello, Ian. How are you? Fantastic. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, and uh, The Guardian is one of our favorite... This is Dr. Bernie Krauss. He's a soundscape ecologist. Which means I go around the world and record natural soundscapes. And I do this because I think really just the sounds themselves are very reassuring to me. And... um, I've always been drawn to them uh, from the time I was very young. I was a bit challenged with a very bad case of ADHD. I grew up in Detroit, and for punishment, my parents would send me to my tiny room in the back of our small house. And um, it was an area that was just being developed. It was typically farmland, and uh, it was part of the Wisconsin Glacier. So it was almost, the, the land, most of it was still viable. And in the spring and summer months, from the perspective of my small room, I throw open the windows and calm myself to the rhythms of the crickets and the dawn and evening choruses of birds. It included all kinds of things, morning doves and pheasants, cardinals, wood warblers, and things like that. And I learned then that those were the types of nurturing sounds that made me feel good. So the environment and ecology was always a big deal for you? Yeah, it was, uh, because it was the only thing that helped me, and this, uh, this made a big difference. What got you into recording the sounds of nature? Well, I was recording an album during my music days. The album was called In a Wild Sanctuary, and it was for Warner Brothers. And um, I did this album with my late music partner, Paul Beaver, and we needed sounds for a number of cuts that required natural sound. And since the album was the first on the theme of ecology, off I went into a local park, not very far from San Francisco, and recorded the late October afternoon ambience. 
and when I turned on that, that recorder and heard the sound through my earphones, I said, my God, this is, this is the loveliest stuff I've ever heard. And so I was, just, I was just blown away when I heard it the first time. It brought back all those calming memories from my early childhood. And I made up my mind right then and there that I wasn't going to let that feeling of serenity ever escape again. Until that point, Bernie had worked in the music and movie industry, recording sessions with The Monkees, The Doors and Stevie Wonder, as well as composing music for films like Apocalypse Now. I was a, a fairly successful musician. Um, we, had, we had done lots of dates. We'd done 135 feature films by then. Uh, we'd done a lot of albums and recording with other artists. It just wasn't a very satisfying life for me, always being inside and always working in a studio. And so from, from my perspective, I just wanted to be out in the wild because it made me feel good. And that was what drew me to it. I had no idea what this would turn into. Bernie did a PhD in sound and bioacoustics and went on to be one of the founders of Soundscape Ecology, that is, the study of nature through sound. For 50 years, he has travelled the world armed with little more than a microphone and recorder. And so it's no surprise that he has some remarkable stories to tell. I was recording north of Manaus in the middle of Brazil, and I was with uh, my uh, colleague from Harvard, Ruth Happel. And uh, we decided to go out one night to see if we could uh, get some recordings of the early morning, like just after midnight, soundscapes. And we were walking down the trail, and we smelled this marking scent of a, of a jaguar that we knew was nearby, but we didn't want to startle it with our, our torches. But it kept following us down this trail several kilometers. Finally, at one point, we decided to go off in different directions and, and record to get the widest variety of uh, natural soundscapes that we could. And so Ruth went off in one direction, I went off in another. But I got to a place where I set up my equipment. I have a 10-meter cable, and so I, the cable was at one end, and I was sitting in this uh, tripod chair. And all of a sudden, uh, this jaguar came up to the mic and literally began to vocalize like a pop singer. I didn't think very much of it. I mean, uh, my heart was beating pretty fast, I can tell you, but um, finally it just stopped and went away and loped off into the forest. Were you scared? No, I wasn't scared uh, because I figured if it wanted to get us, it had plenty of opportunity before then. And so I just figured it was just tracking. No, I, I, I really wasn't. Maybe I was too stupid. I don't know. There was also a time that Bernie saved a humpback whale. That was the fall of 1985, and a humpback whale was reported uh, then in San Francisco Bay. Dubbed Humphrey, the humpback whale had swum 55 miles upriver, 
Officials had tried a number of tactics, like trying to chase it back out to sea with boats, but nothing had worked. Until Bernie came along, armed with a sound file he had borrowed off some students at Hawaii University. That they'd made of humpbacks uh, lunge feeding and the subsequent contact calls that, that occur after they, they go through this feeding process. I took that tape because it was a terrible tape. It had a lot of noise on it and uh, it was only one example of the, of the whale sound. And I processed it multiple ways so that the animal wouldn't become habituated to the sounds when we played it back in the, in the river for it. And when I played those sounds, the whale followed our boat 49 miles in seven hours to San Francisco Bay. And the following day, it, it was herded out to the Pacific Ocean. But if he had to go down memory lane and pick the place that most sticks out in his mind, it would be Alaska. Which, until recently, with the advance of global warming consequences, was one of the most stunning land areas on the planet. And it was replete with thousands of different habitats, both marine and terrestrial. Like, for instance, it's loaded with temperate rainforests, mountains, glaciers, boreal forest, coastal regions, uh, multiple Arctic and subarctic habitats, and best of all, there's only about 750,000 people in an area maybe three times larger than France. And it's a place with areas like, uh, for instance, the Yukon Delta Refuge, where literally millions of the world's birds migrate during the short subarctic uh, spring and summer, flying from as far away as Africa and New Zealand to nest and breed in this one small area. In the biophony, the collective sound that they all make in this one place is absolutely spectacular. We know so little about the sounds of the natural world, and I was just walking along and came across this tide pool, which was filled with these beautifully colored anemones. And I thought to myself, geez, I wonder if they make any sound. So I have a hydrophone, which is um, an underwater microphone with the head covered in neoprene. And I dropped the hydrophone down the mouth part, which is the center part of the, of the anemone. And uh, the tentacles wrapped around it, uh, searching out the surface for anything of nutritional value. And when they didn't find it, this anemone kind of gave this huge burp and we know which is a sound I've never heard before and expelled the hydrophone and I have one of the few examples of an anemone actually expressing itself. Have you ever been surprised at other noises that other animals have made? Oh sure, uh, I have recordings of insect larvae. colleague recorded viruses. Uh, so these are, you know, and people don't think of them as making noise or being particularly vocal, but they express themselves acoustically. And it's amazing uh, what kind of variety of sounds is out there. Ants make noise, they sing. 
Bernie has now recorded over 5,000 hours worth of nature and 15,000 individual species. In fact, he has one of the oldest audio catalogues around. What is dramatic is how the soundscapes in different places change over time. They lose their richness. Some have fallen silent. And unless we begin to understand that we've got a, um, a, a real problem here and that's expressed through a voice, very much like our voice when we get sick with a cold or, or flu or something like that, it, feel, it sounds different. The natural world sounds different too when it's under stress and it's sick. And that is most of what we're getting when we go out into the field to record now. After the break, Bernie and I turn to the state of our environment and why sound is such an important tool in conservation. I'll be back in a moment. John and I present The Guardian's cricket podcast, The Spin. Earlier this summer, one of my dreams came true when England won the World Cup for the first time in history in the most dramatic fashion the sport has ever seen. But there are still two words that mean more to an England cricket fan than any others. The Ashes. Join us as England try to turn a great summer into the greatest summer ever. It's The Spin! The Spin is supported by Nat West. Welcome back to Science Weekly, I'm Ian Sample. Before the break, we heard of some of the incredible adventures of Bernie Krause. As a soundscape ecologist, he's travelled the world, recording nature's orchestra. His archive dates back to the 60s. It's one of the oldest we have, and as a result, it reveals just how much we've changed our planet. My archive represents a collection from places, half of which are either altogether silent or can no longer be heard in any of their original context. And again, this is all due to uh, global warming, pollution, or anthropophony, which is human noise. And uh, so it's a very rare and valuable document of what our planet sounded like just a few years ago and how it's changed since. There are many sound files that really demonstrate Bernie's point, but I want to play you this one. It was recorded in 1988 in Lincoln Meadow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's an alpine meadow full of wild flowers and surrounded by snow-covered mountains and pine forests. You can hear the voices of Lincoln sparrows, warblers, Williamson sapsuckers, woodpeckers, golden-crowned kinglets, robins and grosbeaks, as well as squirrels, spring peepers and numerous insects. <laughs> 
But in 1988, a logging company tried to convince local residents that there would be no environmental impact from a new logging method that they wanted to try called selective logging. Tell us what is meant by this phrase, selective logging. Well, selective logging means taking out a tree here or there, uh, not cutting down the whole forest. You're leaving trees standing. You're only selecting a few trees out of the many. And I asked if I could record the biophony before they began cutting, and they agreed. So on June 21st, 1988, I set up my mics in the meadow about 45 minutes before sunrise, as usual, and began to record the 90-minute dawn chorus there. And it was a lovely biophony. It was similar to the ones that I'd recorded earlier over the decade. But after the solstice, the company began cutting trees. In the following year and 15 times afterwards, I've returned to Lincoln Meadow and tried to record the biophony and, was, and found that it was greatly diminished with all of the lovely density and diversity now gone. And it hasn't returned. And what the company didn't tell us was that even though from the visual perspective of the meadow, in other words, if you're standing right in the middle of the meadow, not a tree or a stick was out of place, but like 200 meters behind the meadow's edge, uh, the forest had actually been completely clear-cut. And this is not an atypical operation for logging companies, and I was really surprised and, uh, when I found this and, and totally disheartened. Do you see similar kinds of impacts in the sea as well as on land? Yes, I do, certainly around coral reefs. And we have some really good evidence about uh, coral reef demise that I recorded in uh, uh, Fiji, for instance. And at one reef, which is just 400 meters long, at one side of the reef, the, the thing was, was very vital with lots of static, which is what fish do. Uh, for the most part. And at the other side of the reef that was dying, uh, the only thing that we could hear were pistol shrimp or snapping shrimp, sometimes called here. And, uh, and they were, because they're, you know, they're the only creature that's left on the reef. You know, and at some point, they too will disappear when it completely dies and bleaches. When you look at these recordings, you break them down into frequencies and such like. How do they change after something like selective logging? What differences can you actually see in the sort of waveforms, if you like? Well, it's almost as if, if you can imagine an, a symphony orchestra. They have all the parts for like Beethoven's fifth in front of them. And uh, the conductor comes out and he begins or she begins to conduct the piece. And everybody plays their specific part. In a healthy habitat, all the animals play their specific role and sing their specific songs, and they all fit into very neat bandwidth or niches. Because if their voices are going to be heard, they have to stay away from one another. And th th their voices have to have channels to communicate that are unimpeded by other sounds. So this is a healthy habitat where the orchestra is all playing, the animal orchestra is all playing together or vocalizing together. In a habitat that's under stress, where one part is taken out or two parts are taken out, and it's like taking away all of the music from the players in the orchestra and telling them to play.
And that's what happens. It's chaotic. The sound is chaotic. At a certain point, they either all stop vocalizing or playing, or, uh, or they continue looking for this acoustic territory that they normally are used to. A lot of your work looks at ecosystems as a whole, but I understand that you can also get a sense of the health of individual animals through the sounds they make. And you've done some work around this with orcas, I think. Yes. When I first got into this field and I was working on my doctorate, I was comparing the vocalizations of Orsinus orca or killer whales from known pods up along Vancouver Island, the eastern part of Vancouver Island. And these were individuals that were taken out of those pods and moved to the like a sea world and, and the, the marine parks. Turns out that the sounds that they made while they were in these small tanks um, were just so lethargic and sad. And you could hear the difference between the vocalizations and the, uh, and the syntax. Actually, they have their own communication system. Each pod uh, establishes its own syntax, and um, uh, we were able to hear the difference between them. And it was truly, truly sad, and I know I'm being a little anthropomorphic here, but I think it's time that we began to remember that we're all part of the animal kingdom, and uh, that being a little anthropomorphic is often not bad these days. We have to think a little bit about that. You've pioneered this idea that sound can be used to monitor the health of the natural world. Why do you think it's such a powerful tool? It's a powerful tool because you can evaluate that habitat in a very short period of time. You can quantify all the information. You can hear the difference you can demonstrate the difference across a wide variety of people, not only scientifically in terms of numbers and, and quantitatively, but also qualitatively to larger audiences. Until very recently, we couldn't show sound graphically, but now with a spectrogram, which is a graphic illustration of sound, which shows all this organization of sound very clearly. You've heard the expression, I see what you're saying, now you can. Is using sound now common practice in conservation? Yes, it is. It's becoming much more common uh, with each passing day. When I got my doctorate, there were six people in this field. Uh, now there are probably more like four or 500. And it's growing exponentially every year. Uh, this is a really fascinating subject. And one of the things, like I said, you know, 50% of my archive is from habitats that no longer exist in their original form, certainly. And we're beginning to lose these very quickly. And at the same time, people are becoming interested in this voice of the natural world because it's so compelling. And it gives us so much information. It's like the library at Alexandria. And we've got to get this thing before it's destroyed. The trends you see when you go back time after time, and you see these soundscapes deteriorating. How does that make you feel? Well, it saddens me. Um, I'm now 80 years old, and I've seen the rapidity with which this has changed in my own life. 
And I'm what saddens me is, I mean, we have no children ourselves, my wife and I. What saddens me is, is that there are all of these young people who are not going to hear this material now. And it is so important for our cultural health. You know, there's this wonderful naturalist by the name of Paul Shepard, who was a, a great teacher and lecturer, uh, who taught at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And um, he was saying, you know, the further we draw away from the natural world, the more pathological we become as a culture. You mentioned your age earlier, and I, I believe you turn 80 this December. Yes. Do you still go out recording? Oh, yeah, sure. Even if I have to do it with a walker. <laughs> I guess the equipment's got lighter, right? The equipment is a lot lighter now, and I couldn't do it if it wasn't. But I'm still, I'm still out there recording. I'm out there, I was out there a week ago recording. It's heartening to hear that Bernie hasn't lost his enthusiasm for nature, despite documenting its demise. And I love the idea that he's out there with a walker and a microphone capturing Earth's symphony. I, I hope that I'm going to encourage people to listen to the natural world and to the soundscapes that are out there because they're so important to our culture they informed our culture. They're the basis of our music. They're the basis of our language. And if we don't recognize the importance of that, uh, we're going to lose something that's really, really valuable. And um, my hope is that, that this work can inspire people to continue this effort. You can find links to Bernie's book, The Great Animal Orchestra, as well as a catalogue of his recordings on our website, theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can. It's scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Until next time, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. This episode of Science Weekly was produced by Greer Jackson and the executive producer was Max Sanderson. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.